I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the first book of your Bible, the book of Genesis, and turn to Genesis chapter 6. This morning, we are going to take a 30,000-foot look at the story of Noah and a worldwide flood that's going to happen in Noah's Ark in Genesis 6 through 9. This is a massive stretch of the story. And so we're not gonna have a chance to look at every single verse in detail. I know that you're disappointed about that, but we're just going to look at the main features of the the Noah story. As you come to Genesis chapter six, the, the trajectory of history up to this point has not been good. Things have gotten pretty dark by the time you get to Genesis chapter six. God creates Adam and Eve, In Genesis chapters one and two, he creates them to live a life of blessing under his rule. But instead of living under the rule of God, Adam and Eve decide to reject God, to rebel against God, to choose to do their life without God. And so by Genesis chapter three, things have broken and fractured. There's a curse for sin that enters the world. Death comes as a result of the curse and things begin to degenerate downward from there. Genesis chapter four, Adam and Eve's firstborn son, Cain commits the first human murder. He commits murder against his brother, Abel. Things get worse from there. One of descendants, uh, the descendants of Cain is held up for us at the end of Genesis chapter four, a man named Lamech. Whereas Cain killed a brother, Lamech kills, kills young children in an unrestrained, uh, murderous rage. And then he writes songs. He writes poetry about his victims. He takes to himself multiple wives and Lamech is held up for us as a a paradigm of human wickedness in Genesis chapter four. Then you come to Genesis chapter five and it's a genealogy. It's a family tree, but the one thing that's repeated again and again, in fact, eight times in Genesis chapter five is this phrase, and he died. So you get this picture of mankind's sin that's getting worse and worse and worse, resulting in the prevalence of death over the human race. And then things get even worse in Genesis chapter six. It's the worst, most evil time in human history before or since. Things get so bad, in fact, this culmination of human sin, if you will, that it leads to the judgment of God. God sends a flood across the earth to judge the world and destroy everything that he had made except for one man and his family. Now, the story of the flood and Noah's Ark is one of the most familiar stories in our Bible. You, if you grew up in church at all, you probably saw maybe murals of the Noah's Ark story painted on uh, you know, the Sunday school wall, which is like the worst story you could paint on a children's ministry wall, right? You know, people drowning and so forth, but we never paint it that way, right? It's like cute, cute animals, elephants and lambs, and there's Noah in the ark. It's very cute. And that's kind of how we've been taught the story. But this is actually one of the saddest, most tragic stories in your Bible. God sending a flood that would destroy the world that he made. It's also one of the most difficult stories, just theologically, to to try to understand what's going on here because a lot of people, frankly, have a hard time squaring the idea of God's judgment with the idea of God's love. How can those two things live together? How could a loving God destroy what he's made? Maybe you've wondered about that. Maybe you've heard a question like this. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? How many of you have ever ever heard that question or ever thought that question before? How could God be loving but also full of anger and wrath towards sin? We almost view God's judgment as a kind of defect in his character. I want to reframe that idea just as we're looking at the text this morning. I want you to think about God's judgment not being in conflict with his goodness, or in conflict with his love, but I want you to think about God's judgment being an expression of God's goodness. 
God's judgment or his wrath towards sin is not a moral defect or flaw in his character. It is actually an expression of his goodness. It's not a bug, in other words, it's a feature of God's character. It's precisely because God is love and because God is good that he destroys and is angry with the evil that destroys those he loves. Think, think about this. I'm a father of four children. I've got three daughters. I've got one son. My son is now taller than me and very proud of it. But I've got three girls. I want you to just imagine that, that, one, that some, one of my girls was being attacked by someone. Because I love her, I will destroy the one attacking her. No love, no wrath. Where there's love for my daughter, I will attack, I will pour out wrath, I will destroy the one who is seeking to cause her harm. If you're a husband and your wife has cancer, if you love your wife, you will hate the cancer that is eating away at her body. Where there's love, there's wrath for that which destroys the object of love. Can you imagine God looking at genocide or acts of terrorism, or rape, or abuse, or murder, and not being angry at that kind of evil? I would say a God who could look at those types of things and not be wrathful, and not judge it, and not deal seriously with it, and, and not be angry with it is not a good God at all. I would say there's something seriously wrong with his character if he doesn't get angry at that kind of evil and wickedness. It is his wrath towards sin that is actually evidence of his goodness. It is evidence of the fact that he loves. That's how we should think about God's judgment. And by the way, if God is not a God of wrath, if God is not a judge, if God is not going to deal seriously with evil in this world, then one of two things are going to happen. Either one, we will become bitter people because injustice is going to prevail. There's no day of account. All the little injustices that you see in your life or on the world stage, if there's no day of judgment where those things are going to be put to right, then you might become seriously bitter at just the reality of evil in this world. Or, on the other hand, you might become brutal people. You see that there's no day of judgment coming, and so you feel the, the desire to take justice into your own hands and make sure that they really pay because there's something in the human heart that says things need to be put right. On the other hand, if God is a judge, if God will pour out wrath on sin, if God does take sin seriously enough to pour out wrath on evil and wickedness as an expression of his love and goodness, then we can trust God to deal with evil in this world in the way that it most deserves. In other words, if there is a day of judgment, if God is going to pour out wrath on sin, then I can sleep at night knowing that even if I don't see justice in my lifetime, there is coming a day where things will be made right. And I can trust God to deal with those things, even if I don't have the power to affect justice in my own strength, there is a God who will hold the world to account. That's what's happening in Genesis 6 through 9. God's anger flowing from his love. God so loves his creation that he's angry at the sin and evil destroying it. So I want you to catch the main features of the story. And the first feature of the story is that the author tells us the reason for God's judgment. Why is God going to judge the world in this way? And verses 1 through 7 of chapter 6 show us the reason that God decides to judge the world in this way. There's a rampant darkness, a rampant 
uh, nature of human evil and sin, we see about it in chapter six. Let's look down at beginning in verse one. It says, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God <clears throat> saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any that they chose as wives for themselves. Almost a sense of a, an abuse here of just sort of taking anybody that they want, regardless of whether they want to be taken. And the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. Now, prior to this, you read Genesis 5, you see people have long lifespans. Here, the Lord is saying, it's so evil, I'm shortening their lifespans. And the Nephilim, verse 4, were on the earth. Nephilim uh, means uh, something like this. People translate it different ways. That it, Fallen ones, that's one way to translate it, fallen ones, or those who cause others to fall. Uh, sometimes it's, it's translated like tyrant or giant. That, that's the Nephilim, sort of these abusive leaders. The Nephilim were on the earth, both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. And they were the powerful men of old, the men of renown, the famous men. And when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Notice that language. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. And then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth. This gives us the reason for what's gonna happen next, this worldwide flood that's gonna come, this judgment on the earth. This is why God decides to judge the earth. These verses serve as kind of an introduction to the story, a prelude, a prologue, if you will, an example of how bad things have gotten that God would destroy the world in this kind of a way. Now, uh, verses one through six, a lot of people argue about these verses. What does it mean? It's kind of a hotly debated topic when people study the book of Genesis. What is this whole thing about sons of God taking daughters of men, giving birth to this group of people called the Nephilim who are you know, men of renown? What is this all about? Well, here's the short answer. I don't know. And no, no, neither does anybody else, okay? But there are some options. People have had different options about what this might mean. Option one, a common view is that this is a reference to kings, sons of God. Sometimes in the Bible is a reference to kings or rulers. And so in this view, the, the kings and rulers of the earth are going around in sort of the peasant class and just picking anyone's uh, daughter or sister or wife and taking them to himself as a wife and then bearing children. So this almost kind of a, an abuse of leadership, if you will. Picture the scene from Braveheart, you know, where you've got a, a tyrant king who's just sort of taking all the women of the land. That's one option. Sort of an unrestrained, if you will, an unrestrained uh, abusive sexual immorality. Another option is that the sons of God is a reference to the descendants of Seth, which is a godly family line. And the daughters of mankind is just a, a reference to the descendants of Cain, which is an ungodly line. And so there's a picture here is that the, the family of Seth, which is godly, and the family of Cain, which is ungodly, are marrying without regard or reference to God, and they're just creating these evil offspring. That's another view. The third view is my view, and it's the weirdest one, all right? It's the view that the sons of God is a reference to angels. Sometimes, often actually, in the Old Testament, Sons of God refers to angels, and particularly uh, this might be referring to uh, fallen angels who procreate with human women and give birth to this strange race of people called the Nephilim who are powerful men, men of renown, kind of these warrior beings, almost like Hercules-type figures, the Nephilim. 
And you say, Pastor, where are you getting that? Well, it's a very common view, actually. And one of the reasons that people think that this might be what's happening here is because of a couple of references in the New Testament. The book of 2 Peter and then the book of Jude. That can be your homework for later. You can go and read what it says about that. But the book of Jude talks about uh, angels, fallen angels, leaving their proper place and doing what is shameful. And it actually connects it in the next verse to the idea of sexual immorality. Now you say, how does that work? I don't know. But that's, an, that's another view out there. Again, if that is the view, then the, the sin here would be this sort of unrestrained, abusive sexual immorality. Uh, 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 angels, fallen angels, you know, just sort of taking whoever they want and procreating with them. So that's, that would be like the one common thread through all three of those views. Whichever, whatever this is talking about, the one common thread is this sort of unrestrained abuse. People just taking anyone they want, doing anything with them that they want, this sort of unrestrained sexual immorality. Does that sound like America in 2023? Without reference to God, not caring about the ethics of it, I'll just do whatever I want with whom, whomever I want, and I don't really care about God's will, right? So regardless of what you view you take on that, I think that's what's being held up for us as an example of the kind of wickedness that's going to bring the flood. In other words, things have gotten so bad, evil so pervasive that this is the kind of thing that's happening. It's summarized, of course, in verses five and six, when the Lord sees that human wickedness was widespread on the earth that every inclination of every human heart was always evil all the time. Listen, you might think we're in a bad spot as a country, but I promise you we are not in as bad of a spot as Genesis 6 and verse 5. That every inclination of every human heart was always evil all the time. That's how bad things were. That's how widespread wickedness had become. Look down in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled to the full, filled up to the brim, filled to overflowing with wickedness. And God saw how corrupt the earth was for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. What's the repeated word in those two verses? Corrupt. The earth was corrupt. And notice God's response to this. In verses five, six, and seven, it says the Lord saw it. It's interesting because you see in Genesis 1 through 5, God sees. In Genesis 1, God creates the world and he saw that it was good. You have the repetition of that. God saw it was good, but then he begins to see things that were not good. He sees Adam and Eve rebel. He sees Cain rebel. Now he sees the wickedness of the earth. You know, sometimes I think we sin and we don't think anyone sees. I think we sin and we think, we think it's not hurting anybody. I can get away with it. No one's noticing. Nobody sees this. We, we harbor secret sins, thinking no one in the world knows, but God knows and God sees. God saw the wickedness. And look, he regretted. He... <laughs> Speak, Lord, your servant listens. <laughs> He's on channel two, I think. That was channel two coming in. Uh, he regrets. Two times in verses six and seven, he regretted, he regretted. And then he was deeply grieved. That's a powerful way of thinking about God. He was grieved. You know, parents, you understand this. If you see your child doing something you know is going to hurt them, there's a, there's a down to your bones grief, a woundedness, a pain, a hurt. That's how God is described here. He sees 
the wickedness of mankind and it grieves God. Listen, if you don't think anyone sees your sin, God sees it and it deeply grieves the heart of God. Our sin won't escape God's notice. God sees it. He's grieved by it and he will, he will do something about it. And that's what happens in this story. God takes action. That's the second feature of the story I want you to notice. We, we see the reason for God's judgment, this sort of rampant evil. But then I want you to notice in verse, verse 7, you see the reality of God's judgment. God says, I'm going to send a flood to destroy everything that I've made. God's judgment is real. It's probably the least popular biblical notion in our world today, the idea that God is a judge. We don't want to believe it's true because we don't like it, but just because we don't like something doesn't mean it's not true. God's judgment is real. God will judge sin. And notice in verse seven, the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals and creatures that crawl and birds of the sky. Look down in verse uh, verse 13. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm gonna destroy them along with the earth. Look down to verse 17. Understand that I am bringing a flood, flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will will perish. Notice God's judgment is certain. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about this. In verse seven, he says, I will I will do this. He said it in Genesis 2, 17 to Adam and Eve. On the day when you take the fruit from that tree, you will certainly die. Here he says, I will judge the earth. I will wipe mankind out. It is certain. God will judge. Mark it down. It is also comprehensive. Notice the universality of this. I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth. The, the animals, the creatures that crawl, the birds of the sky. In, in verse 13, he says, I will destroy everything, every creature. Verse 17, every creature, everything on earth will, will perish. This is universal terms. The author is trying, wanting you to understand that God's judgment will come for all of us. It is comprehensive. No one is exempt from the judgment of God. There's not gonna be a day when God judges the world that you say, you know what? I'm a good person, I'll escape. You know what? I'm religious, I give to charity. I'm not gonna come under the judgment of God. The judgment of God is comprehensive, it is universal. God's judgment is also cataclysmic. You notice it was a flood that God would send. Chapter six and verse 17, I am bringing a flood. Chapter seven, That flood is described in verse 11. It says, on that day, all the sources, this is chapter seven, verse 11, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open and the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Down in verse 17, the flood continued for 40 days on the earth and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. This is a cataclysmic flood. God will judge, no one is exempt and judgment is horrible. The rest of chapter seven says that everything that had the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on land died. Only Noah was left. The author is wanting us to get a sense of the certainty of judgment, the comprehensiveness of judgment, the calamity of judgment. God would have no half measures in dealing with sin. 
Now, you might wonder why a flood. Well, I think there's interesting imagery here because you remember what the earth was like before God formed and filled it in Genesis chapter 1? What was the earth like? It says that darkness was on the surface of the waters, right? So before God forms and fills the earth, it's this watery mass. Now, as God judges the earth, it returns to this sort of watery mass. Someone has said this is a picture of an undoing, an uncreation, a decreation. That's what sin is. If you go to a museum of art and you walk up to a beautiful masterpiece and you're mad about something happening and so you get a can of spray paint and you spray paint over that masterpiece, you've defaced something that is beautiful. That's what sin does. Sin is an undoing, a defacing, an unraveling, a marring of what God has done. And so God is going to go back to the beginning, start over, wipe the slate clean. It's an uncreation. Chapter 7, verse 23, he wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth. From mankind to livestock to creatures that crawl to the birds of the sky, they were wiped off the earth. This is perhaps the Bible's most powerful illustration of Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. So, pastor, what does this have to do with us today? I mean... That was a judgment then. Does that have anything to do with us today? Well, yes, it does. There are multiple references to the flood in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus references it a couple of times. And every time that the flood is referenced in the New Testament, it's always referenced not with a look to the past, but a look to the future. Every time someone brings up the flood in the New Testament, they always bring it up as a warning of a future judgment that's to come. Let me give you an example of that in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. Look at what Jesus says. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. Look at verse 38. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah boarded the ark. Verse 39. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. You see what Jesus is doing? He's recalling for those who are listening. He's saying, remember the flood. Remember how people were eating and drinking and merrymaking and they're living their life and they're focused on the stuff of this world and then surprisingly, here comes this massive flood that wipes them all out and Jesus says, that's how the coming of the Son of Man will be. People will be preoccupied with the stuff of this world and Christ will catch a lot of people by surprise when he returns. There are a lot of things the Bible says about Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is the incarnated son of God, that he is God made flesh, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that he was buried for three days, that he rose back to life, that he ascended after 40 days to the right hand of the father, which is where he is now. But the Bible also says he's returning and to be ready. Now, when he returns, he will rescue his children and he will judge the world. Acts 17 and verse 31 says that God has set a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man that he has appointed. When Christ returns, that's going to be a glorious day for those who are in Christ. But it will be a day of judgment that will far surpass the horror of the flood of Noah's day when Christ comes back and judge. And anyone who is not found in Christ will be a recipient of the wrath of God. And so let me ask you this question. Are you ready for that? 
Christ will return. The Bible says he will return soon. The one thing you can know, there are lots of things we can't know about the return of Christ, but there's one thing you can know, you should be ready. There will come a day, listen, not everyone who is here may have the rest of this day. That's a sobering thought. Let me just tell you, we bury a lot of people around here. You don't know when your last day is. No one schedules it. It catches you by surprise. You don't know if you'll have till the end of this day. And the Bible says that when you die, you will face a God of judgment who is angry towards sin, who pours out wrath on evil. Are you ready to meet God, the judge of the earth? Let the story of the flood be a warning to you to be prepared for the future day of judgment to come. And here's the thing. Anyone who is not found in Christ will receive, be on the receiving end of the wrath of God. So let me urge you today. Let me be one voice into your life today. This life, it's so easy to be preoccupied with the stuff of this world, to, to eat and drink and be merry and to be focused, and even on this time of year to be, be caught up with family and presence and busyness and all the stuff and not think about the ultimate things. Let me be one voice of warning to encourage you to think about the ultimate things, to be prepared for the day of judgment, to make sure that you find a refuge, a shelter from the judgment of God. God's judgment is certain. It is comprehensive. It is cataclysmic. There is a day of judgment in the future that is coming. Make sure that you're ready. Make sure that you find refuge and shelter from the wrath of God. You say, Pastor, how do I find rescue? Thank you for asking that question. We don't have to go any further than Genesis 6 through 9. Because this shows us not only the reason for God's judgment, not only the reality of God's judgment, but Genesis 6 through 9 shows us also how to be rescued from God's judgment. This story is a story of judgment, yes, but it is also a story of how to be rescued from the wrath of God. We see it in the family of Noah. God saves one man and his family and some animals, and he, he gives us some pictures in this story of how you and I can be rescued from the, from the wrath of God as well. And so I want you to pay attention to this. Listen, there are fingerprints of God's grace all over this story. There are fingerprints of the gospel all over this story. How, how many fingerprints do you have on one hand? Who can tell me? Five, hopefully all of you have all five fingers on at least one hand. You got five fingerprints, right? I wanna show you five fingerprints of God's grace in the Noah story, okay? Fingerprint number one, I want you to see a picture of God's favor, of God's favor. In all of this judgment and all of this wickedness, there is one man who is different. His name is Noah. Now, I want to introduce you to him. Look, look at uh, Genesis 6 and verse 9. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. That, the, the Bible tells us, Hebrews 11, that he was righteous by faith. He's blameless in his reputation. And look, Noah walked with God. Now, this is only the third time in your Bible that this phrase, walked with God, is used. It's used two other times in the previous chapter. In Genesis 5, twice Enoch is described as being a man who walks with God. To walk with God means to be God's very intimate friend. Enoch was God's very intimate friend. Noah, likewise, was God's very intimate friend. He was a righteous man. He was a blameless man. He was a man who walked with God. But let me tell you why he was righteous and why he was blameless and why he walked with God. It was because he had received the favor of God. Look at the previous verse, chapter 6 and verse 8. The most important thing you can know about the life of Noah 
is verse 8. Noah, however, found, let's say it together, favor with the Lord. The reason that he was righteous, the reason that he was blameless, the reason that he walked with God is because first he'd experienced the favor of God. Now, this word favor is incredibly important. It's used throughout the Old Testament. It's a very common word. It's used, in, for instance, in the Joseph story that Joseph found favor uh, with the Lord. He found favor with Potiphar. He found favor with Pharaoh. It's used, this word is used in the Exodus story. When the Israelites find favor with the Egyptians and later find favor with the Lord, it's used in Ruth's story when she says to Boaz, why have I found favor in your sight? It's used of David when he finds favor in the eyes of Saul. It's used of Esther when she finds favor in the eyes of King Ahasuerus of Persia. This word favor is incredibly important. Now, what does it mean to find favor in the eyes of God? Well, you can translate the word favor as kindness, kindness, or even grace. It's one of the Hebrew words that comes closest to the New Testament word for grace. Grace and kindness are like inextricably linked, right? What is grace if not God's kindness to us, which is undeserved? It is unmerited. That is what grace is. God not because of anything in us, not because of anything that we've done showing kindness to us. That is the grace of God. Would you agree with that statement? God doesn't look at us and say, oh, you're impressive, you're deserving, therefore I'll show you grace. There's nothing deserving in us. There's no merit in us. It's kind of like the love or the favor or the grace that a parent has for a child. You love parents, you love your kids just because they're your kids. They've done, they've done nothing to earn that love. And sometimes they do things not to earn that love. Don't say amen to that one. But you love them before they're even born. And then once they enter the world, you are in love with them from moment number one, 10 years later, you're still in love with them. Even if they run from you, you still love them. Amen? Not because of any merit, not because they've deserved it. That's the idea of favor, undeserved kindness. Folks, that is the grace of God. God loves us not because we deserve his love, but because he is loving. In other words, God's love for us is not based on anything in us. It's based on something in him. He is gracious, so he shows grace. He is loving, so he shows love. He is kind, so he shows kindness. It has nothing at all to do with anything in me. The reason that I have a relationship with God is not because there's something impressive in me, not because I'm religious, not because I'm deserving, not because I'm a pastor of a church. The basis of my relationship with God is nothing than the merit of God's character itself. I have a relationship with God on the basis of the merit of Jesus Christ and him alone. And Noah had experienced that. Noah had found that kind of undeserved kindness. He'd experienced that kind of grace and it made a difference in his life so that he became a righteous man and a blameless man and a man who walked with God all because he had received the grace of God. That's the first fingerprint of God's grace in this story. It's his favor. The second fingerprint is God's ark. God's ark, God provides rescue from his wrath to Noah and his family by telling him to construct and then enter a boat. That's what an ark is. Look at chapter 6 and verse uh, 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. Verse 15, he starts to tell him how to make it, how large it's going to be. And, and then in verses uh, 17, all the way through the end of the chapter, he says, look, you're going to build this ark and then you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives, y'all are all going to come into this ark and you're going to bring animals with you. These animals are going to be used to repopulate the earth uh, once the flood is over. 
And so that's exactly what Noah does in chapter seven. If you keep reading into chapter seven, he brings pairs of clean and unclean animals into the ark. He builds the ark. And then as the flood comes, they enter the ark. Here's the deal. How can you be rescued from the wrath of God? Look at the ark and learn. God provides a means of rescue, but you have to run to that refuge that he provides. As long as Noah and his family would enter the ark, if they would get in the boat, they would be safe, they would be sheltered, they would find refuge from the wrath of God for sin. It was this means of rescue. You must get in the boat. If Noah had said, no, thank you, God. I don't believe in floods. I don't wanna build a boat. I'll do life my own way. Noah and everyone else would have been caught up in the flood. But the Bible says that Noah believed God. God counted it towards him as righteousness. Noah actually got in the boat. And because he got in the boat, God rescued him from his wrath. Noah becomes like a a kind of deliverer, like Moses. You remember Moses whose life was spared from death because his mother put him into a boat-like basket, floated him down the river. Here, as long as Noah and his family are in this boat, they will be rescued from death. Moses, of course, later would lead the Israelites through the water while God pours out judgment on the Egyptian army as they drown in the Red Sea. In a similar way, the ark is a refuge, a shelter from the wrath of God. As long as Noah's family and these animals are in the refuge of the boat, they're sheltered from, from wrath. This is seen in the Passover later in Israel's history. You know that if the Israelites found refuge in a house where the doorposts were covered in the blood of a lamb, they were sheltered from God's judgment as he sent the angel of death through the land of Egypt. The ark is a picture of God's grace. God will rescue the ones who run to his ark of refuge. As long as you're willing to get into the boat, you can be saved from the wrath of God. Listen, God's judgment is certain. It will come. It is comprehensive. No one will be exempt. It is cataclysmic. It is horrible. But you can escape it if you'll run to the ark of God's grace. And the ark has a name. His name is Jesus. By the way, this is why when you go into the old cathedrals all around the world, you'll see some of these beautiful old cathedrals. The architecture is so theologically meaningful. A lot of those old cathedrals are built like a boat. In fact, if you come from a liturgical background, you, you probably know this, that the, the main body of a cathedral is called the nave. That's the Latin word for ship. And if you actually walk into a cathedral and you look up, that transcendent, beautiful ceiling, many ceilings of cathedrals are built to look like the hull of a boat. There's symbolism there, Right? The church of Jesus is like a ship of grace that will bear you along through life's storms. Folks, this is a picture of Christ. Christ is God's ship of grace. And if you will run to him for refuge, you will be spared from the wrath of of God. So listen to me. Get in the boat. Get in the boat. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ and maybe you are like those in the days of Noah who are eating and drinking and giving in marriage and merrymaking and you're occupied with the stuff of this world, let me be one voice in your life that urges you to get into the boat of God's grace. Anyone can enter the ship. Anyone is invited, everyone is invited to come to the ship of grace if you'll come through Jesus and you can come through Jesus today. Here's the third fingerprint. All right, I'm preaching now. Fingerprint number three. God's faithfulness. We see God's faithfulness to Noah in this story. It's interesting. I wish I had time. 
at least another hour to break all of this down, but I can't. So I want to just show you a picture here on the screen of how the story is constructed. The author is, is, is beautiful construction. It's a mirror, a, a mirror reflection through Genesis 6 through 8. The story begins with the Lord's promise to destroy the world. It ends with the Lord promising not to destroy the world in chapter 8. In chapter 6, Noah builds an ark. Chapter 8, Noah builds an altar. Chapter 7, Noah enters the ark. Chapter 8, Noah exits the ark. Chapter 7, the flood rises. Chapter 8, the flood recedes. Everything in the story is perfectly parallel to something else in the story except for one thing. Anytime the Hebrew authors will write a story this way, if there's something in the middle, that's to draw focus. It's to show you that's the main point of the story. You know what's exactly in the middle of this story? Chapter 8 and verse 1. You know what chapter 8 and verse 1 says? Look at it on your screens. Chapter 8 and verse 1 says, God, let's say it together. God remembered Noah. God had made a promise to rescue Noah if he would run to the ship of grace. And God never breaks his promises. God said, if you run to the ark, you'll be spared. If you'll come into the refuge that I'm providing, I promise I will rescue you. And then the flood comes, days and days, weeks and weeks of the flood. And you wonder, has he forgotten Noah? Is he going to drown? Is something going to happen to Noah? But the author says the real, the real point of the story is not the judgment of God, it's the rescue of God. God remembered Noah. He's faithful to his promise to rescue. Listen, God, if you'll run to the ship of grace, God will not forget you. God will leave no one behind. Amen? He keeps those he saves. He will save you and he will hold on to you all the way to the end. He will not forget you or fail you. Here's fingerprint number four, God's covenant. God is going to make a covenant promise to Noah. In fact, the first time the word covenant is used in the Bible is chapter 6 and verse 18. He makes a promise. That's what a covenant is. It's a solemn vow, a solemn promise. You see this in chapter 8 and chapter 9 especially. God makes a promise not to flood the earth ever again. You see that in chapter 9 and verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. There will never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. God is a God of covenant promises. And a covenant is like, the way you can think about a covenant is a tr it's like a treaty, a treaty. If you have warring parties, a treaty is when you say, let's put our weapons down, warfare is ended. God here says, I am making a treaty. I'm making a promise. I'm making a covenant that all is gonna be well between us, that we will be at peace, that we will be friends. Listen, God rescues the one in covenant relationship with him. Fingerprint number five, God's bow. God's bow. You say, where is grace in the story? Notice he gives a sign of the covenant. And he gives the sign in verses 12 and following of chapter nine. <clears throat> chapter nine, verse 12, it says, God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I form clouds of the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. You know, the word for bow, what's he talking about here? Bow in the clouds. What's this referring to? A rainbow, right? So he says, look, I'm making a promise never to destroy the world in this way again. And here's a sign. I'm going to put a bow in the clouds. Every time you see a rainbow, it's a reminder of the covenant promises of God. It's interesting, the word here, 
is the Hebrew word for bow as a weapon. And so I want you to think about a couple of things here. Notice the way the bow is pictured. It's like he, God has hung up his war bow. Hostilities have ceased. The war is over. God says, I'm, the sign of the covenant is I'm hanging up my bow. I am not going to pour out wrath on you anymore. And the second thing is, notice which direction the bow is pointed. It's not pointed down towards the people. It's pointed which direction? Up toward heaven. This was a sign that the next time that God poured out this kind of wrath, it would be directed towards him. The rainbow pointed forward to a day when God would certainly, comprehensively, cataclysmically pour out wrath for sin. But the next time that God would pour out this kind of judgment on sin, it would be aimed at himself. That happens, folks, at the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross of Jesus Christ, God is aiming his wrath heavenward. At the cross of Jesus, God is taking all of his wrath for sin, taking it upon himself in the death of his son, Jesus. The cross is about God taking God's wrath so that you can receive God's grace. And folks, that's how you can escape the wrath of God. It's the only way is to run to the one who has taken the wrath of God for you, to believe Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, that if you are in Christ, there is no more condemnation for you. If you'll believe that promise, if you believe that you can run to Jesus as an ark of grace, a, a refuge from wrath, if you believe that promise and are willing to commit your life fully to get into the boat and say, I'm with Jesus, then you can be rescued from the wrath of God. And so I want you to hold up your hand, look at your fingerprints, I want you, every time you see your fingerprints, to say, God, thank you for your fingerprints of grace. Can you say that? Thank you for your fingerprints of grace. It's all over this story, and it shows us the, the way, the only way to escape the wrath of God. Amen? Now, I want to close with this, all right? I'm, I'm closing my Bible. It means that I'm landing the plane, all right? You know, Paul will often say, finally, brothers, and then he'll give you like four more chapters. <laughs> I'm about to do that. So here's how I want to end. I want, to, I want you to consider how should we respond to God's grace? If you enter the boat and you entrust your life to Christ, how should your life be different as a result? Well, Noah actually shows us two ways. In, in chapter 6 and chapter 7, we see that Noah is a man of obedience. In, the, in chapter 8, Genesis chapter 8, you see that Noah is a man of worship. I think the two characteristics of Noah's life as he responds to the grace of God in his life is he's a man of obedience and a man of worship. If you look in chapter six and seven, four times in just about 20 verses, you have this, the repetition of this phrase, Noah did just as God had commanded him. You see it in 622, 7.5, 7.9, 7.16. Noah did just as God had commanded him. He was a man of obedience, in other words. Noah obeyed God when it didn't make sense. What's a flood? What's an ark? It makes no sense to build an ark for a flood. You don't even know what, it, what a flood is. But he obeyed God, even when it didn't make sense to him. Sometimes God calls us to obey when it doesn't make any sense to us. Amen? He, he obeyed when it wasn't easy. 
to build something this massive. Can you imagine doing it without all the technology that we've got? I mean, this is a massive task to build a boat. He obeyed even when it was hard. God calls us to a life sometimes of difficult obedience. He obeyed when the outcome wasn't immediate. You know, it took years for this boat to be built. It took years before the flood came. Can you imagine the ridicule that he would have endured? Here, I'm, I'm obeying, I'm obeying. How long can you obey till you see God's promise come? Noah shows us to obey even when the outcome is not immediate. What Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. That's discipleship. A long obedience in the same direction. Noah was a man of obedience. And I think that's an appropriate response. When you understand the grace of God, you want to respond with, with what Paul calls the obedience of faith. Say, God, what do you want me to do? I'm in the boat. I'm fully in whatever you call me to do. But the, the second thing about Noah's life is that he's a man of worship. You know, the first thing that he does when he gets off the boat, chapter 8 and verse 20 says he builds an altar. His first thought upon receiving God's grace was Godward. He builds an altar. He worships the Lord there. He offers a, a burnt offering symbolizing full devotion, total surrender. And I think that's a model for us. When we really understand the grace of God, that should be the, the response of our heart to say, God, I'm going to be totally surrendered to you. God, whatever you want. I, God, I'm writing you a blank check with my life. God, you fill in the amount. Wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say, however you want me to be, God, I, I offer myself fully to you. Noah shows us how to do that. Now, the last thing I'll say about it is this. He doesn't do those things perfectly. He's a man of obedience, yes. He's a man of worship, yes. But he's also a man with feet of clay. You say, how do you know that? Well, because the rest of chapter 9. The rest of chapter 9, uh, Noah fails miserably, just like Adam. And I think the rest of chapter 9, here's what happens. Here's the short story. You can read about it this afternoon. The short story is, he gets off the boat, you know, he's obedient, he builds an uh, altar for worship, and then he goes and plants a vineyard, and he makes wine, he drinks it, he gets stone-cold drunk, and the next time you see him in chapter 9, he's stone-cold drunk, stripped naked, and passed out on the floor of his tent. That's how Noah's story ends, okay? And you say, well, that's a weird thing to put in the Bible. I think that's God's reminder for us that as obedient as you are, you're not Jesus, as worshipful as you are, you're not Jesus. You're not going to be without flaw and without failure. We're just like Noah, right? You have these great mountaintop moments, and then all of a sudden, have anybody ever experienced that? You're like a mountaintop moment with Jesus, and then boom, it's like you're in the valley. That's Noah's story. So here's the, here's the thing. Yes, we're to obey. Yes, we're to worship. But understand, we won't, we won't do those things perfectly, which is why we need Jesus. It's why Jesus is the hero of the story. It's why we need him a lot, because we fail a lot, like Noah, like Adam. But there's one who never fails. And in fact, we'll learn more about him next week, but there's Noah, drunk, naked, passed out. His son, Ham, comes in and sees him in the tent, runs out and tells his brothers, kind of mocks his dad. He gets cursed for, for that. But the other two brothers... Shem and Japheth, Noah blesses. You know that Shem is going to have a bunch of children. They're going to be called the Shemites, the Semites, the Semitic people, the Jewish people come from the line of Shem. 
65 generations down from Shem, you have a Jewish carpenter by the name of Jesus, who is a second Adam, who never fails, who is a second, a true and better Noah, the ship of God's grace, but one who never fails. And so he's the hero of the story. Amen? Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for this story that points us to our need for refuge from wrath. Lord, for those of us who know Christ, I pray that we would flee from sin, that we would cling to Christ, that we would walk with you righteously and blamelessly, not perfectly, that we would be people of obedience, people of worship. Lord, help us to be thankful for your grace and live like it. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who does not know grace, they don't know Jesus, and if they were to die today, they would face you in judgment. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would get in the boat and put their trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Only possible through your spirit. So spirit, you work among us now. We pray this in Christ's name.